I'm Austin, and this is Validated. Today I'm speaking with Aaron Henshaw, co-founder and CTO of Bison Trails, a blockchain infrastructure platform. In early 2021, Bison Trails was acquired by Coinbase and became Coinbase Cloud. Just weeks before this recording, Aaron stepped down from his position as head of engineering at Coinbase Cloud. So before we dive into this conversation, I want to define what blockchain infrastructure means. Blockchains run on computers everywhere, but those computers still need to be somewhere. To put it simply, there's a combination of sophisticated hardware and software that work together in order to maintain a blockchain network. So when we talk about infrastructure, we're referring to any component of this system that facilitates blockchains actually running. Infrastructure, to me at least, also implies a level of professionalization. Google isn't run out of some kid's basement anymore. Tens of thousands of individuals around the world still run their own validators and miners. But as more and more businesses are built on or interacting with blockchains, the demand on that infrastructure increases. Today, Coinbase Cloud runs infrastructure for more than 30 protocols, often starting at the testnet stage before the networks have even launched. Aaron's vantage point gives him a pretty unique perspective on how these networks have evolved, where they're going, and what it takes to run blockchain infrastructure at scale. Let's dive in. Aaron Henshaw, welcome to Validated. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here, and it's good to see you again. For the listener who doesn't know, I used to work for Aaron back in the day at Bison Trails. Yeah, which was amazing. And now you've moved on to do pretty amazing stuff over at Solana. I mean, you guys too, I have to say. like, One of the reasons I was really excited to have you on and to have this conversation is there's a ton of conversation going around blockchain infrastructure. You know, If you looked at 2022 and you didn't look at the price of any of the tokens, you would have thought it was the biggest breakout year for crypto ever. You saw all these huge Web2 companies start adopting and building stuff on blockchain from Instagram and Meta to Stripe to everyone else who's getting involved. And one of the commonalities is that they all now have to have enterprise level demands for blockchain infrastructure. And that is a lot harder than it sounds. It is a lot harder than it sounds. And (laughs) I agree with you. 2022 was a great year for crypto, but there's been like an insane amount of infrastructure built and also technology developed at the protocol layer. And like all the protocols have gotten stronger and more resilient and faster and like evolved their roadmaps. So yeah, it's, it's hard sometimes not to look at the prices, but it's important not to. Well, I want to I want to get into this all today because you're in a pretty unique vantage point as the co-founder of Bison Trails and the CTO there and then the head of engineering at Coinbase Cloud after Bison Trails was acquired by Coinbase about 2 years ago because very few people work on an engineering level across multiple protocols and actually have to keep them running from day to day from an infrastructure standpoint. But let's kind of let's kind of rewind a little bit and and start more at the beginning. Um you know, blockchain started as Bitcoin miners and Ethereum miners running largely in residential households. Uh, eventually, that service gets mildly professionalized. But the early days of professionalization was really just buying new ASICs and buying the fastest GPU. And then there's this transformation that sort of starts to happen. And, and you and Joe and Bison Trails were very kind of early in this infrastructure transformation. Um, so I'd love to kind of go back in time to that that time when you guys were thinking about taking something that was kind of more of a, a mining business and operations and turning it into actually professional grade infrastructure. Yeah, totally. So if we go all the way to the beginning of our blockchain story, I guess to start, I've worked with Joe Laluz, my co-founder for 15, 20 years now. We've done a number of things like a bunch of startups that failed, but 
probably like seven or eight years ago, we started like tinkering around with crypto. And actually, for whatever reason, the first thing that we tried to figure out was like how our blocks formed. It felt important for us to understand the like fundamental building blocks. And like, we're still kind of working on that today. It turns out that that's a very deep space. And the first thing we did was we were like, well, to figure out how they're formed, we should probably build a mine or understand how these things happen. So the first thing, even before Bison Trails, was we actually built a proof of work mine out in the Pacific Northwest. And it's like a multi-megawatt mine. It's not big by like the standards of the public companies out there that run these like huge places, but it's pretty decently sized. It still runs today. And the interesting thing about that is that type of project is very like start stop. You're working with like real, first of all, it's very fulfilling because you're working with like real engineering, not software engineering. You're talking to like electrical engineers and civil engineers and you're like building things out. And it's really, really cool in that way. But there's like, you have to wait for permits. You have to wait for the drawings to be done. You have to wait. And so all of that time while we were waiting, we were also starting to dig into proof of stake, which at the time was like, not a thing you know the mo- the majority of people were like this is ridiculous you know proof of work forever and this was five six years ago now yeah you remember all of the sort of the fear and doubt from folks whether proof of stake was going to actually be secure enough was the the idea that somehow this wouldn't be a viable consensus me- well civil resistance mechanism to run totally. blockchain infrastructure and you know like even when we went out for our seed round there was a lot of people who were like fine with crypto but very like this thing is like a fringe thing and we we're like well but if you like project it forward and ethereum really does the merge and all these things launch like it's actually going to be the majority of the thing but they were like no you're you're not correct at this moment in time but yeah so getting back into it like so we just started to tinker really with a lot of different networks and at the time i think it was like Tezos maybe was live. Cosmos was like in its game of stakes. I think LivePeer was live. There's very few things to like mess with. And so we just started to mess with those. And we started to learn a lot. We actually like had active validators that made revenue, which was very like cool from a business perspective. We were just like, oh, we just tinkered on the internet. And suddenly like we have delegators and we're like participating in these networks. And so That was like the birth of it. And then we turned to professionalize it over basically the next four and a half years. And I can go into detail, but at some point it was like, okay, there's uptime concerns here. There's like availability issues. Like we probably can't do this ourselves. So we either have to decide if this is a business where we can like grow it or we should potentially stop doing it and look for something else. Yeah. So one of the things that I really love about the space that Bison Trails and other infrastructure companies are are operating in is that you, you hear anyone talk about crypto and it's like, we start here and then there's this hand wavy bit and then we'll get to a state where the rest of the world runs entirely on blockchain. And yes. that hand wavy <laughs> bit is always where we run into problems. And so as you're talking about the, the proof of stake migration that was taking place there, you know, from a network infrastructure perspective, like if you don't work in tech, and even if you work in tech, if you don't work close to the actual engineering side of things, it's very easy to overestimate how easy it is to just run something on the internet. The abstraction level between I want to run some code and there's a server somewhere that I'm actually running that code on is pretty massive of delta. And, you know, one of the things I was always surprised about when I was first talking to you guys about Bison Trails was 
that this was not something that was easy to do, and this was also not something that the established players were seeing. As crypto prices started to rise and more and more people started to perceive crypto as a legitimate asset class, traditional infrastructure providers just weren't stepping into the blockchain space. These were still the days when almost every exchange was running its own infrastructure in-house, and generally they were pretty bad at it. So what can you say about the traditional infrastructure provider's lack of blockchain adoption and the opportunity you saw for yourself in Bison Trails? Yeah, so the gap, I think, was probably twofold, right? One is, as proof of work professionalized and got more and more like economically efficient, the cloud providers understood that that was not a place for them to play. Because you can't scale proof of work in the cloud. Like you need these very tight circuits that are highly efficient and built at smaller and smaller nanometers with like highly cheap power. So I think early when CPU mining happened, like people would mine on these cloud machines and use their cloud credits and all this stuff. And they started to like clamp down on this. But to them, I think the main thing, Bitcoin and Ethereum and all of the coins at the time, was like not an option for them to play. And so you had to be deep in the current goings on at that time to say, okay, proof of stake is here. This is actually general compute scalable. We can run like standard EC2 instances or standard GCP instances, and we can actually do really well financially, and we can build a lot of stuff around them. And they frankly just like weren't looking at it. Because the market size, you know, like we were a startup trying to convince investors that the market size would grow. But at the time that we were doing it, you had to project out to make it a viable business. You had to believe like three things would be true to believe that this thing would actually work. And, you know, that's not the business that I think these cloud providers are in. Like when one of these database softwares comes out, it gets adopted and then they do it. They're not like implementing the things that's in R&D and probably proof of stake was more in R&D at that time. So yeah, so I think those two things, proof of work kind of keeps them like this isn't for us. And then I think you had to be really deep in proof of stake at the time to notice that there was a real big opportunity. I mean, if you did the back of the napkin math to look at the TAM of the market and the total crypto market, and if you believe that proof of stake would take over the majority of the value and you understood the emission schedules of various blockchains, you were like, holy shit, this is a huge business. Right. If it all works out. There's always an if. Yeah. So going into sort of some of the actual launch of Bison Trails and and that development, you know, at the time there were a number of boutique providers out there that were servicing maybe one or two protocols where they were seeing people who are highly specialized at running like incredibly efficient, you know, pick your blockchain. But there weren't many people who were saying we want to cover 20, 30, 40 protocols like you were. Yeah. I don't know if we were the first to think of that, but we certainly did it at scale probably first. A lot of the initial providers came from the communities, I think. And so they were like embedded in the Cosmos ecosystem or embedded in the Tezos ecosystem. And it was more like, how do we do things within this single ecosystem? For whatever reason, the way that we approached it was like, let's just try them all. And the way that we modeled it and sort of like the business twist that we saw was, okay, so you don't want to run more than 30% of one of these networks as an individual company. You really would like it to actually be lower than that because we always took the stance that we don't want to put these networks at risk. But at the same time, you can build multi-cloud infrastructure, multi-region infrastructure. You can do things that actually potentially strengthen the network if you do a good job and you like convince your customers to 
disperse across these. So for whatever reason, we looked at it that way. I actually don't know why, but at the exact same time, I will say that like a few other companies that thought that way, like Figment and Blockdaemon and us and Staked, like all of these companies at the same time were like, oh, we should do this at scale, like horizontally and build a platform. How do we do this generically? was like the question that we were trying to answer. Like how much of the components could we abstract away? What are the common elements of each of these networks? And there's a lot of differences between them, but at the end of the day, there is a lot of similarities. So you can kind of like make building blocks and we felt confident that we could scale using building blocks. And we were right-ish and there was like a lot more challenges than just that. But I think that that was like the original thing. And I think like from a business perspective, the way that we looked at it is like, if we can run 20 of these networks and they get to X size and we can run 10 to 15% of each of them across a bunch of customers in different regions, and we can charge a lower fee than what people are charging publicly. And we actually can do better at scale. Yeah. So coming back to that building blocks question, because I think, you know, a lot of people are in that same boat you described. Like I know more than a non-engineer ever should about how a Solana validator actually runs. Uh, but I know very little comparatively about how a Polkadot validator runs or a Cosmos validator on Tendermint. So with that thesis you guys went in about like there's certain levels of abstractions and commonalities between all protocols, how true was that when you actually got into the engineering of trying to build a platform to support all of these? I think like broadly at the highest level, it is pretty true, right? Like every network needs access to compute, every network needs access to storage, every network needs access to RAM, every network needs access to a networking layer. And so that is true. But then the nuance is like, okay, this cello needed like a single sentry in front of its validator, which was like, sometimes finicky, that meant you only can have like one peer coming into your validator, you know, Solana is like single CPU threaded bound, right? So like you can't really take advantage of parallelization as much. You actually need the fastest core possible. So there's all these nuances across all of them. So to actually do it becomes incredibly challenging, even though at the core, like it is fairly true that they are consistent and you learn, (laughs) you learn, you know, like you programmed it the first time and you built all these pieces of infrastructure and you didn't do it as like plug and play as you could. And like, then you kind of spend a very long time trying to build the next version, but while you're in motion on the previous version, it makes it very, very difficult. Like migrations are incredibly expensive as yeah, anybody who's done them understands. Yeah, this is one of those things that I always think is is so interesting about software companies in general that are running infrastructure is that you look at it from the outside and you're like, we can create a generic platform to run all blockchain infrastructure. And then you're like, oh man, what does an archival node look like on EOS? And how does that compare to one that's running <laughs> on something else, right? Compared to like Ethereum archival node. And so you get into this place very quickly where what starts off looking like a very high scale business, like AWS, I think people assume is an incredibly high scale, high margin business. And yeah, some of that's true, but the amount of engineers they have building tooling for probably less than 10,000 customers that keeps those 10,000 customers happy is also a huge number of people. Yeah. So that like, at the beginning, you're growing and you're like, okay, cool. I feel like we have product market fit right now. And there's a lot of people who want things from us, like 
Some people want more Solana infrastructure. Some people want more Ethereum. Some people want more of this and that. And you kind of like have to be smart about which ones you choose, but you also, you might have a multi-asset customer who's like, actually, I'll do all of these things with you, but you need to commit to doing these two things you don't already do. And so sometimes you back yourself into a corner and then a year from now, you're like, oh, like we're running archival EOS nodes and like that takes like four people to maintain. And like, we have three customers on this thing and like that, it can't be economic, like it's not worth it. So you kind of like, as you scale, you start to learn which levers are turnable, right? Like you certainly can do it with Solana. You certainly, there's many networks that it works great with, but there's some where you just have to say like, we just can't support this as, as a viable business. And I think actually, if you see now, partially because of token prices, but I think partially just because of the maintenance and like the requirements of upgrading these things. If you zoom out, like at a minimum, you need to keep all of these nodes up. And these are like peer-to-peer networks, different things happen. Like sometimes things just break. There's a memory leak. Like, you know, people are on call, they have to do this stuff, but also you're supporting 10, 20, 30, 40 different ecosystems at the same time that all have engineers on them, on those teams with their own like build and release cycles. And so you have to then release software across all of these places and do it in a way that doesn't risk slashing and doesn't risk downtime and doesn't risk all these things. And so you build a tremendous amount of tooling to automate and test and run tests and run tests and run canaries and run tests. And like tests are very, very important and hard though, because like, how do you test the live Solana network, right? Like there is like DevNet and there, there is places, but you can't actually simulate the real thing. And so then are you going to risk one of your like active nodes and put a canary out there that could, and you kind of have to sometimes when the stakes are big enough. So anyways, we spend a lot of time building tooling to automate stuff. And one of the best things I think that probably happened as part of joining Coinbase is we were at a point where we were supposed to start scaling from a business perspective. Like our business was growing very fast and Coinbase gave us access to like a slightly different talent pool that I think was very appropriate for the time. So maybe we didn't need all of these people at the beginning, but as we were doing scale, we actually got to hire people from Amazon and AWS in particular, but folks from GCP and they brought in certain lessons that allowed us to like build a highly efficient operational team, but also focus very much on tooling. And we leveled up in a way because of that. And I think that that's been very good over the last couple of years. Yeah, I, I want to get into more of the the transition that many of the cloud providers are going through now too. But you know, something you you said was that there were these multi-asset customers. I think we we, we, we sort of know you're largely talking about VCs and, and investor funds that are, are investing broadly across the ecosystem. What role did you think the sort of the prof- I want to call it professionalization, but the interest of the professional investment class in digital assets drove the demand for companies like Bison Trails. Do you think like we would we still be in that world if very few assets were owned by VCs and hedge funds at this point? Yeah, that's a good question. First, I'll just say the other type of multi-asset customer is an exchange and a custodian. And so those are potentially your favorite ones. But yes, funds and a lot of our early customers were funds and institutions. Like those were the people who had invested in these networks early. You were before the point where custodians really could even support many of these networks or had support, right? It was very sparse. So 
They were doing bespoke things. Like they were doing all sorts of crazy stuff to spin this up. And yeah, I mean, without those customers in the early days, like I don't know who our customers would have been, frankly. So to answer your question, like I don't know that things would have professionalized as quickly without the demand for, you know, because these people are all fiduciaries, right? They have like, they ha- they have to do things as safely as they can. It's like other people's money that they're putting at risk. And so the professionalization of this industry happened very quickly because you had to very quickly like rise to the occasion. It had to be non-custodial. You had to have slashing protection. You had to figure out insurance potentially that showed up. Like there's a lot of things that it, it actually helped, right? Make the whole industry safer through that demand. Because you're listening to this podcast, I'm assuming you're interested in staying on top of the latest trends, news, and more. So I want to tell you about another show. It's called Web3 with A6NC Crypto, but it's really about the future of the internet, future of creators, future of business, future of the way we work and live. It's for anyone seeking to understand the latest tech trends direct from experts with high insights per minute, given your time and attention are so valuable. Follow Web3 with A6NC in your podcast app now. You know, this is kind of going back to what we were chatting about before, but there is this idea that exchanges used to just go down and everyone was like, oh, you know, at the time we need it most, X and Y exchange goes down. And, you know, the meme was Coinbase just because everyone used Coinbase, but it applied to Binance, it applied to even FTX, it applied to everyone at that point. Um, so, So when do you think that sort of the exchanges started viewing infrastructure as as a competitive advantage? Yeah, it's a good question. So there's node infrastructure and then there's like exchange infrastructure. And a lot of these centralized exchanges don't need like what we did at Bison Trails to operate. They need it to like send and receive and they need to interoperate with these exchange like. Right. But it's mostly internal accounting. It's like a centralized order book. It's a centralized system. It's like high throughput. Like these systems are crazy. It's not my expertise. It's very impressive to me from an outside perspective. But like here's the engineering challenge that they face. It's like crypto trading is a wild thing. And like, you can have like 10 or 50 X bumps in volume and like requests per second in like an hour. And how do you build systems that are tolerant to that? I think is a very, very challenging engineering problem. And so Part of me is like, it's not that they didn't value it, but it's like any other company or system that is experiencing a ton of demand and success and is growing quickly. Like you're just kind of trying to make it work. Like if you talk to senior people at any company for the most part, they're just like, yeah, we just taped the stuff together because it doesn't matter whether you're AWS or you're Stripe or you're Coinbase. It's like, because things are moving quickly and there's a lot of demand. And of course, like you're thinking through systems and challenges and you're doing things as scalably as you can. But anyway, so I think in the last few years, actually maybe what's happened is these systems have become more resilient to the change. Like I got to see it firsthand internally, like the engineering teams that focused on this stuff were doing it like crazy job, like load testing, finding the bottlenecks, fixing the bottlenecks, load testing, finding the next bottleneck, and then figuring out how they can meet the scale and meet the demand when it comes. But then you also have to think about costs. Like you don't want to just run a bunch of latent infrastructure. 
when you're not. So how do you like keep things medium hot and easy, quickly scale? So it's not an easy challenge, I will say. Um, but I do think that probably over the last few years, they really took a look. And I, I think probably the other thing is that there might have been an acknowledgement at some point that like, you just can't run like it's very, very hard to do all of this internally. It's very, very hard to like be the best exchange, but also run all the best node infrastructure and run the best staking infrastructure. Um, and like now bridge infrastructure, like relays, like there's going to be there, the number yeah. of things you seemingly need to operate and run doesn't seem to be slow, like stopping. So I think the specialization occurs and I think that that's good. And then people use like third party providers. Yeah. So, you know, Bison Trails was acquired in early 2021 by Coinbase. And we're we're looking two years later now at this point, the, the landscape of crypto in general is so much different than it was at that point in time. I think one of the, the one of the biggest things I see from the outside is that the demand for validation infrastructure is fairly steady state, but the demand for read infrastructure has absolutely skyrocketed. And, you know, this is sort of like you see this in Web 2, right, as well. 99% of operations on the Internet are read operations. They're not write operations. Walk me through a little bit of how that transformation took place and how, you know, both in the context of Bison Trails, then going into being a division at Coinbase, how you thought about navigating through what was a pretty, pretty massive shift in the business opportunity for the organization. The simple answer is just developers continue to show up. And there's no slowing down. Like, it's incredible. Like, the stuff that's going on in all of these ecosystems. The, there's that, like, elliptic report that gets put out every year. That's mostly, the electric like, capital. open source, electric, electric capital. Sorry, yeah. There's the electric capital report that gets put out. And, like, it's really cool to see the yearly growth. And those are just, like, it, it gets put in headlines. It's like, this is how many developers. But it's actually a really small subset of them. It just shows, like, growth of the industry. Because it doesn't count, like... There's a thousand blockchain developers at Coinbase, but like they're not in Electric Capital's report. So, anyways, like it's really cool to see that, but that is the demand for read infrastructure. Like, if you're building anything, you need access to RPC nodes, you need access to indexers, you need access to many layers of data. The first thing you do if you're building something is you get access to a node. And then the next thing you do is like build an abstraction layer that like parses it out and makes it so that you can serve to your customers like the actual data they need. And so the idea is that like not every company should continue to do this. And so there is, I don't, I don't know how that like played out. Anyways, so the, the reason is that block space is very valuable and it's a very good thing to play in as a business. But like you said, it grows, but it doesn't grow at the same rate as the demand for just breed infrastructure and being able to build stuff. And that, that almost certainly will continue. The flip side is that like, it's a very tough business. You still have all of the challenges that you have with validation infrastructure, but potentially across wider fleets, upgrades, uptime, high availability, like multi-region support, latency. It's very, very challenging. So not to say that like people shouldn't do that business. It is just a hard business. Yeah, there's two places I want to go with this, but maybe we'll start with uh, considering that you are now the former head of engineering at Coinbase Cloud, maybe uh, you're able to answer this question. What we've seen a little bit in this space is that there are products and services built to service blockchain infrastructure that have started pushing a lot of specialization or proprietary APIs in terms of how people interact with data. And then you have something like 
Coinbase Cloud, which has historically, and Bison Trails, which has historically not provided as much of a proprietary endpoint, but instead sort of a raw binary endpoint. How should developers be thinking about, you know, it, choosing infrastructure if if it's something that is uh, pretty turnkey, right? Where you can say, oh, I'm hitting this endpoint, now I'm hitting this endpoint. That's a pretty simple change. But if you're using more of these specialization tools, this is like a classic AWS thing where they build tools to save you time. And over time, those tools become a lock-in for you, you staying there. How should developers be evaluating if that's if that's a choice they should be making for what they're building? The, the trade-off is what you said, right? So like... If you use a proprietary endpoint, the good thing is going to be that you're going to get to market faster. You're going to probably have faster response times to load your pages. It's going to be like a net better experience for your user, which is why it's attractive. But then you have lock-in risk. You have like, what if the vendor changes the endpoints, right, randomly, or they deprecate it? This is like not quite come to fruition yet, but like... I generally would love to see more open standards. So like the graph is there's like some performance issues with the graph, the decentralized one, whatever, but like directionally, it's really good because you have these subgraphs that are canonical. And so sure, you can run it, you could actually run them anywhere. And so if you are able to expand a model like that, and the performance of these systems gets better, then you can use centralized systems, but you don't risk as much of the lock-in. That being said, like I was looking at a company yesterday and like they have a really great spin on the whole API thing. They're doing like accounting focused APIs, which is like, as we all know, if you've done crypto taxes, like everybody hates that. And they just have like a gross section and a net section of like a transaction. And they actually give you like here's what happened here. It's like painful for you to parse out yourself if you're an individual. And maybe there'll be an open standard for that or you just have to use it, you know, like yeah. it's, <laughs> yeah, it's a hard trade-off, right? You just have to, you have to know the risks going in and you have to like understand if something happens, what would you do? That's an interesting idea though. I hadn't really heard anyone talk about the idea of like taking something like the graphs data structure modeling and saying, well, there's no reason that, you know, Bison Trails 2 <laughs> can't run the same data structure model the graph does, but run it on a non-decentralized framework or for something else like that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't know the stats now because they haven't been paying attention recently, but for a long time, and maybe still this is true, maybe it's not, but most of the graph usage was on their centralized system. Yes, and like the edge and node. A, the edge and node stuff. So like the main problem with it is, or the throughput issue, is that you have to like query RPC nodes infinitely and so to rebuild it like if you're building an index like if you're a uniswap and you have a subgraph when you want to make a change to it that could cause a rebuild of the index it can take like days now that's not a good developer experience right. so like how you have people you you hear people like building around changing their subgraphs i think so i think that the i can't remember the name of the company but like the graph wound up pulling in this like high throughput streaming company. Streaming fast. Yeah. Yeah. Streaming fast. And that, I don't know like where that has gone or when, but like the idea of that would be, you can now stream through, you can rebuild these indexes in like an hour, two hours, if you parallelize it. And, you know, Coinbase does stuff like that internally, like, cause you can't wait that long. It's really uh, expensive. So anyways, yeah, these these things are going to get better, right? And like those things will get faster. And so I I do like that model. I know that people have like 
the graph this and the graph that, but like as a conceptual model, it's it's excellent. Yeah, I, I'm sure you've spent a lot of time looking at some of these decentralized infrastructure layer networks as well. And I, I'm not talking as much about things like Helium and Pollen that are, are serving like a, or Arweave that are serving a more niche use case. But like one of the, the classic criticisms you hear of any decentralized infrastructure approach is by the time you've parsed the request enough to send it to a decentralized endpoint to generate a result to then come back to you to then go to the customer, you may as well just fulfill the thing yourself. At the same time, like it's not like Google runs in one data center. So you can make these models work across the world. What are you seeing on the decentralized infrastructure front that either you're, you know, you're thinking might be interesting at some point or is getting closer to being ready for prime time? There's like Pocket Network, which is the decentralized RPC stuff. Those, I think, in some ways, because the routing is simpler, don't suffer from as many of the problems that you just talked about, like the graph. I'm sure that they know a lot more than I do and like they'll figure it out. But like that's really hard to make work. Whereas I do think it's pretty exciting to have decentralized RPC networks, decentralized full nodes, right? There's a lot of trustlessness that comes from having all these different providers. Like you're not relying on one thing. There's a lot more nodes. It strengthens the networks. It's like really, really good for everybody. It's very hard to compete, I think, with like Infura on Ethereum if you are like in the East coast of the US like it is spectacular but you can see pocket actually doing a little bit better than a lot of these like centralized providers when you look at their asia latencies or when you look at their european latencies because out of the gate they're getting this like geographic distribution yeah and in the flip side of that too is we are now seeing the cloud providers become sort of first-party infrastructure providers. Right? Google announced their whole Node engine, and the main thing that they say is interesting there is they're moving these things from being front-end services, as you'd call them, that run sort of in the user space, to being back-end services that are fully managed and run in sort of a, a higher level of access on the GCP backend. Amazon's doing something similar with Avalanche around subgraphs and subnets. As sort of the big players that, quite frankly, a lot of blockchain infrastructure runs abstractions on top of today start entering the space, how does that change how you or someone, you know, at, at an infrastructure company is thinking about like what the future of their product development looks like and how do you kind of compete in that space? It's something that we always talked about, like when will the cloud providers yeah. come in? And I think that now is the time, right? They're all looking at it. They're all starting. They all have product offerings. I think Cloudflare has had an Ethereum offering for a very long time. I think AWS has had some version of Ethereum for a long time. Google is really getting serious about it. When it comes to the commodity, the truly commoditized pieces of this stack, like the let's just say RPC nodes, I don't know how exactly you're supposed to compete with them because they have their costs. And unless they pass on their pricing to you at cost, which they're not going to, they can basically always beat you on price. And they have all the other things in their suite. And it's nice when developers use a single thing. So I think the opportunities for companies are going to be up the stack like further. So like... um smart contract development platforms, testing suites, like notification systems, like all of, so, and I think, you know, there'll be somewhere where these things like meet in the middle. And probably if the business is good enough, like the cloud providers will continue to move up the stack. Like I would, if I were them, <laughs> you want to think that sometimes they might be like, we're going to make the enterprise blockchain now, the private ones. And like, I, 
when they do that, like at least we can kind of ignore that. But the ones that are taking the public network seriously, they're really going to compete at that base layer, I think, to start. And it's going to be hard to compete with them when they get to scale because they have all the talent, they have all the systems, they can do all of the things that they need to do at scale to be like a very serious player. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's so easy to paint kind of a doomsday picture of this too, where the little bit of overblown hysteria we saw around OFAC blocks in the Ethereum ecosystem actually becomes something as a real concern of suddenly we have three large publicly traded cloud companies based in the United States supporting maybe not the validation side of things, but 70, 80% of the access data network for, for these blockchains. How do you think about decentralization and sort of the, you know, the, the, the classic problem of, and we see this across the board, capitalism is incredibly good at driving efficient costs to its lowest price point until there's a shortage or until there's a scarcity, right? The, the, the classic example of this is like, we used to manufacture masks in the United States, hospitals started buying them from China because they were cheaper. We had a global pandemic and suddenly we could get no masks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and until the there's same, a problem, and, we keep going to the cheapest place. Yeah. And those those US facilities spun back up. And then a few months later, they all went bankrupt because the hospitals started buying from China again as soon as they could. And I think we could run into a, a similar situation in blockchain where because the centralized providers are so capable and competent. And because the decentralized systems, you I mean, you have to be willing to put your values above your bottom line at some point today to use a decentralized provider. And, and many people make that choice and I applaud them for it. But I think we're going to see that bargain become tougher and tougher as you go forwards. Do you have any ideas about how we kind of escape that trap? I don't know how we escape the trap. I think that the trap is, it's not necessarily a trap. Like decentralization is a spectrum. And I'm generally of the belief that you don't have to be at 100% decentralization today. That could take 50 years. And as long as we're incrementing in the correct direction, these ebbs and flows will happen. Like I saw a stat today or yesterday that like the rocket pool open validators are like significantly less performance than the Lido like closed pool of validators, which is like no surprise, right? Like this is a set of companies doing this professionally with a bunch of business acumen and this is a bunch of home stakers and that's good that they can do it but if you're putting your ETH somewhere you're going to look at these like things and make a, a trade-off decision uh, based on that but that being said like Lido is pretty decentralized like it's not bad like there's a lot of providers and it's actually really really good for the ecosystem and so when it comes to cloud providers getting into the RPC nodes and maybe they'll get into staking infrastructure too because again the margins are good if it's enough of them, like that's fine. Like it's already running on their infrastructure already, right? And so when you remove a party, you certainly increase the correlative properties of a system. So like by taking out 15 third parties that are running nodes, you know, the the configuration for GCP nodes are all going to be the same. And that is certainly a risk that gets added. But if AWS does it and GCP does it and Azure does it, and you know, there's like 10 plus smaller cloud providers and if cloudflare has one and you know like yeah that's fine that's as long as it's not all in aws us east one that is the that's the thing you want to avoid and like who knows if people will use it at scale or if they really are attached to morales or infura or you know we'll see 
So you've been heads down for the last four and a half years, first at Bison Trails and then at Coinbase. You've recently stepped back from from Coinbase, Joe, as yep. well. What do you What are you doing nowadays? I'm I'm uh, I'm not doing much right now. It's only been a couple of weeks since we left, and I'm still following the industry. I think that what I'm trying to do is like spend time with my family. That's like my main goal. So I have a five-month-old daughter and I have a three-year-old son and I have a wonderful wife. And like with startups, when you're doing it, like you are not the best functioning member of your household. I think, you know, you yeah. you try, but you're not. Like it's too hard and it takes too much work to do it well. And what we experienced with Bison Trails and then the acquisition was like really intense and like a very fast ramp up. And like, I'm also seeing some friends and like having lunches and breakfast now and again. And it's really nice. Um, at the same time, I am continuing to like read a lot about blockchains. Like I don't see myself leaving this space. Like there's so much interesting stuff happening, especially with interoperability. So I'm staying up to date to some extent, but trying to like not work too hard right now because it's probably just a matter of time before like Joe and I do something else. I got to ask you about zero knowledge infrastructure, because looking at the space so far, uh, it's a little bit of a mess. A lot of the stuff is run on proprietary or specialized hardware. No one really has good models for how we decentralize this stuff at this point. A bunch of it's permissioned. At the same time, it is the big bet that many networks are making for both scalability and privacy layers. Have you been thinking about zero knowledge infra? I will say that like I am curious. I'm not an expert in it. Maybe I could be one day, but it is so I've I've read enough to like kind of loosely understand, yeah, like the proving infrastructure, the things that generate the proofs, that's often not like this is just the companies that build these things. But the trade-off I think there is because it's provable, like there's not that much risk in that being centralized because it's spitting out something that this circuit should be able to say is true or not. And if it's not like they didn't do it. And I think it's very hard to fake. Um, yeah, it's a censorship problem. It's not an interference problem. Yeah, exactly. And so I do think that it's interesting. But no, I don't know. I don't know. I've like I've read a bit about the succinct labs like that like client. That's really cool. There's a ton of people working on ZK, UBM, ZK, everything. There's the scalability aspect. There's the privacy aspect. Like it's a big, wide open field. So paying attention, I can't like opine on it, I would say, like very much like this is really cool. This seems very important. And maybe I will spend some time reading more about it. Awesome. Well, Aaron, thanks for joining us today. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Validated is produced by Ray Belli with help from Ross Cohen, Brandon Ector, Amira Valiani, and Ainsley Medford. Engineering by Tyler Morissette.